welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Political Science Juan Fernando Abera del Cueto. Del Cueto studies state building, democratization, and the relationship between political and economic development. He studies these topics both cross-nationally, focusing on the Latin American region, as well as sub-nationally within Mexico. And from a methodological standpoint, Del Cueto relies on qualitative methods such as comparative historical analysis and process tracing, as well as quantitative analysis. He's currently finishing a book based on his doctoral dissertation that seeks to explain the varied trajectories of state building that several Latin American countries followed during the 20th century. De Cueto is also interested in exploring the relationship between political institutions and development outcomes at the subnational level in Mexico and the different quality of democracy in Mexican states. Del Cueto earned his bachelor's in public administration at El Colegio de Mexico, his master in political science, and his PhD in political science at the University of Chicago. Professor Del Cueto, welcome to 13. Thank you very much for having me. I am very excited about the opportunity to be talking to you. Well, we're excited to have you here, and uh, there's a lot of really interesting things, I think, uh, related to your research and current events in the world today that I think um, folks will really enjoy. So I, I wanted to kind of kick off our uh, questions uh, with talking a little bit about the current state of affairs, and you extensively study the government structure of Mexico and Latin America. And I'm curious um, what you are seeing now with respect to the impact of the global pandemic and how those various governments are dealing with it. And I know there's a lot of different governments here, um, but maybe there's a few areas that you've, you know, maybe stick out or um, that come to mind as far as, you know, the impact that COVID-19 is having uh, on that part of the world. Absolutely. So this is a, this is a very interesting question, and I absolutely think that this is a moment that um, is making us think hard about uh, the relationship between uh, governmental institutions um, and outcomes at the societal level. Right? Um, how is it that governments are dealing with this uh, with this problem? Now, I should say that um, interestingly, this is a crisis that um, has made those question our priors in regards to. Um, how exactly is it that state capacity or governmental capacity can help governments deal with this? And it is absolutely true that if you look at, uh, you know, the numbers uh, in terms of cases and uh, deaths and, um, you know, a number of things that are connected to the pandemic, um, there is a correlation between um, state capacity and how well governments have dealt with the issue. But, uh, and this is an important, I think, um, qualification to that claim, uh, it is also true that it's a it's a crisis that requires uh, very very strong and clear leadership. So it is it is true that um, governments that have a higher state capacity, that have stronger health systems, um, have on average dealt better with the with the crisis. But this is a crisis that also requires very strong and very clear uh, leadership. And it is uh, absolutely true that um, countries that were poor le leadership has been displayed. Uh, have fared also uh, very, very badly in spite of having 
relatively um, strong um, state capacity or relatively strong governmental capabilities. Let me just illustrate this with a with a couple of examples that come from the region that I study. Right, so this is uh, Latin America. So um, at the beginning of the pandemic, in general, um, the the process started relatively equally uh, with not so many uh, cases. This is very much connected with the nature of the problem, right? So at first, the pandemic affected centers of population that are very much connected. It's not a coincidence that we had had it starting in China, then moving on to Europe, then moving on to North America. And then it slowly started to spread uh, to other regions. And it started slowly in Latin America, and then uh, it started to accelerate. Now, where are we seeing um, uh, problems? Actually, in, in the more recent weeks, we have seen uh, the cases of Brazil and Mexico stand out as cases where um, the numbers have been um, increasing very, very fastly. And even though in both cases, um, hospital capacities has, have not been overwhelmed, um, it is a little bit of a surprise because these are not two countries that in the context of Latin America would be considered uh, would be considered to be low capacity states. These are in fact um, states that historically have displayed um, relatively high levels of, uh, of state capacity. And here is where I think the role of um, strong leadership comes to, comes to play a role. And then we have other cases uh, with historically less um, state capabilities uh, that have done better, comparatively better, mainly because of this um, um, important role of, uh, of, of leadership, okay? Um, and now, this doesn't mean that leadership can make up for um, a state capacity or governmental capacity. That is, you can have very good leadership that, and if you don't have a relatively strong health system uh, to take care of these uh, types of issues, you will still run into trouble very, very, uh, very, very quickly. But the opposite, uh, is not true. That is, even when you have relatively strong um, um, capabilities, governmental capabilities, a relatively strong health system, if you lack leadership at the top, uh, then no matter how strong that governmental capacity is, it's going to be very hard. Why? Because this is this is something that relies on um, behavior, right? So this is a crisis that requires us to modify our behaviors, not only uh, to have strong hospitals or strong um, networks of, um, of health providers or stuff like that. And for that, you need more than just the institutions that are in place. You actually need someone to show the way, right? To um, um, provide a very, very clear message. And I think that's the reason why in the context of Latin America, we have some cases where even though there are relatively strong um, state and governmental capabilities, they are still seeing uh, very much um, a crisis unfold mainly because uh, the message has not been clear. Uh, there, there have been inconsistent messages um, featured by politicians and then by um, you know, health authorities. And that overall has contributed to a slow change uh, in, in behavior, right? I think we can very much relate to that, uh, to that story because it's similar to what we have been seeing um, in this country, in the United States. And so I think the logic of that um, is, um, is very easy to grasp, I think. I hope. Are there any any nations in particular that you feel have fared uh, better or or have surprised you as far as their response or reaction to the so, pandemic? 
Yes. Um, let me let me say let me answer this question with a with a caveat at the start, right? Which is, this is unfolding, and so sure. uh, I think we have been a little bit surprised by cases that initially seemed to be doing quite well, and then that changed. Now that said, I do think that uh, there are two countries uh, that, um, in the context of Latin America, stand out. Um, those are the cases of Costa Rica uh, in Central America and Uruguay in, uh, in South America. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not uh, completely surprising at all. These are two uh, small countries. So there are some, let me put it this way, this, there are some geographic um, and, um, and also size-related factors that have definitely helped these, uh, these two countries. Both of them are very small countries in terms of population. They have a few urban centers. These urban centers are not incredibly large, incredibly dense. Uh, their capitals, Montevideo and, uh, and San Jose, Montevideo in Uruguay, San Jose in Costa Rica, are comparatively small, uh, small cities. Their economies are uh, very much uh, connected or related with rural activities, um, even though there are differences between the two. Um, as a general you know, depiction, this is, this is correct, compared especially with other countries in the region. Um, their economies are much more connected to uh, primary products and stuff like that. So both the economic activities and the urban concentrations are not uh, very much conducive to this. And so that's important to note at the beginning. But having said that, that is noting the fact that there are both geographic and, um, and size-related factors that have helped these two countries, I also think that both from an institutional and a leadership perspective, uh, they have fared very well. These are two cases, by the way, that I um, write about in my in my research, uh, they turn out to be uh, two very successful cases of a state building. Two cases that, by the way, are not very much um, in our regular discussions, both in political science and I think in the general field of Latin American studies. Mainly because they are small, they are not very much the relationship to. Uh, you know, the United States is is very uh, timid. It's not very important um, in terms of, uh, you know, foreign uh, policy for the U.S. and stuff like that. And I think all of that makes us miss this, uh, these relatively smaller cases. But in terms of their historical trajectory, they have been able to build the most robust um, welfare uh, states and welfare systems in the context of uh, Latin America. And I think that that antecedent of having these very robust um, uh, systems of, uh, you know, social protection and health provision definitely um, have also helped them in this uh, juncture right now with this uh, crisis that we're going through right now. Hmm. So, you know, thinking about how history um, is often a tool for understanding our, you know, current events uh, and, you know, maybe as a bit of a crystal ball to predict things to come, can you talk a bit about how past economic downturns in Latin America and Mexico ended up influencing the long-term trajectory of some of their governments. Yes, absolutely. I think this is a this is a very good question um, that will give me an, an opportunity to talk a little bit um, in comparative terms with regards to what we're going through right now. I, I should say very very clearly that I. I I, I, I do not like to make a, a, a predictions. I don't yes. think, uh, you know, social science is, is about that. Uh, yes. But I do think that past crises can inform current events and can give us um, um, an important and a good light 
to think through the problems that we're going through right now. And um, I think the question is important for the Latin American cases because um, it turns out that this is a region that historically has been connected um, to, um, you know, the you know that international relations and, and the world system at large operates in interesting and sometimes capricious ways, right? So we don't do not have at large in the world uh, like a state that can enforce rules for everyone, um, and so relations obey for the most part, this is something that specialists of international relations will tell you, uh, through power, right? And so um, more powerful countries tend to have um, a better position to defend their interests when they relate to other countries. And historically what this has meant uh, for a region like Latin America, although this is also true of other regions of the world, is that their, their connection to the world and their insertion to the world economy has always occurred under rules that um, they have only marginally influenced, right? And so for a long period of their history, of their independent history, these are countries that, you know, became independent in the early 19th century um, and have been, uh, you know, independent countries for a little bit more than 200 years now. Uh, for a long period of that history, their insertion into the world economy was dictated by uh, the economic needs of the economic centers of, of the world, particularly Western Europe and, and North America, right? And so the first long period of economic development that occurred in the region uh, was in the, in the last third of the 19th century and the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And this was mainly through uh, the exchange of um, primary goods, right? Like, um, you know, raw materials, um, foodstuffs like coffee, like banana, um, stuff like that, a lot of minerals, right, copper, um, but primarily, you know, primary products that were needed by uh, these industrializing countries, right, um, um, and um, in turn, in return, they were receiving a lot of um, manufactured goods, right, mm. and so in terms of how much leeway these countries have in, uh, to dictate their own economic policy and, um and uh, to build uh, their own uh, institutions, they were always constrained by this fact, right? That their development was very much dictated by uh, the needs and by the rules set by and established by other, um, other centers of power, other countries. And this fundamentally changed um, a little bit less than 100 years ago with the economic crisis, well, with the, with the world wars that uh, the world experienced in the first half of the 20th century, but fundamentally, I think, through the effects of the economic crisis of the, of the 1920s, right, which shattered this system that had been created of exchange between, um, you know, producers of primary products um, and producers of manufactured goods. And it not only shattered like materially these exchanges, right? They virtually stopped some countries from, you know, 1929 to 1930 um, lost 70% um, of their export capacity. Some of them lost revenues um, from one year to the other um, in excess of 50%. So imagine wow. that the budget was $100, yeah. right? In 1929, by 1930, their budgets were less than $50, right? Mm -hmm. And so this was a, a, a major, a major, major, major event 
that naturally had profound effects. There was a lot of pain and there was a lot of um, you know, problems that derived from, uh, from this crisis, but that ultimately enabled um, local political leaders to reimagine the way that their countries related to the exterior, right? And how they themselves related to um, economic elites in the interior, right? And so uh, for the first time, there's a very, very strong push to uh, regulate and strongly govern the um, economic relationship of you know, foreign capital with, this, with these countries. And in fact, a whole architecture uh, for the international system emerges in no small measure uh, by the pressure exerted by these countries that historically had been marginalized in the process of both decision-making and rule-making at the, at the world level, right? And so a lot of the rules that are built in the 30s, 40s, and then in the aftermath of the Second World War um, have the input and are, in fact, um, the, the, their main advocates are, in fact, leaders of Latin American uh, uh, countries. And that this was facilitated by this major, uh, major, major change. And internally, this also um, gave local political elites more autonomy, right? Because economic interests were weakened by this, by this crisis, uh, this enabled them to um, enact some degree of separation between economic elites and political elites. And naturally, that, there's some reason for concern when that, when that happens, right? You, you never want to have political elites that are completely detached or completely separated, completely autonomous from the society that they are supposed uh, to govern. But some degree of autonomy from, uh, from uh, economic interests is definitely healthy, right? And I think uh, for the most part, the institutional building process that got started at that moment uh, was characterized by this sort of dual um, characteristic of higher autonomy from uh, foreign powers and also higher autonomy from local economic elites. And that was very important because it paved the way for uh, a stronger architecture at the world level, right, uh, to regulate exchange and to, you know, um, provide very precise rules to how some countries could intervene in the economies of others and stuff like that, but also internally to build novel institutions in terms of taxation, in terms of uh, services provision, in terms of a number of things that are very important for uh, governmental capacity, right? Interesting. This was a little longer uh, answer, but I hope it no, was it's fundamentally good. clear. <laughs> you know, I think much of the U.S. news uh, that I think you know, folks in the U.S. consume about Mexico and Latin America has focused on generally one of two things, right? So it's either cartels or immigration. I feel like that's all we ever hear out uh, about uh, from that area of the world. And um, I, I think just to to start with immigration a bit, I, I'm curious what most Latin American countries and Mexico um, how do they view the current immigration situation with the U.S. and the current, um, uh, I guess, administration's kind of uh, attempt to crack down on illegal immigration or to restrict even legal immigration? Um, what What is the viewpoint from from different parts of the world? And does it, I, I presume it changes depending on um, how many uh, individuals are leaving a particular country and for what reason. But I'm curious as to, you know, how um, you've seen the press in in South America and uh, in, in Mexico. How do they talk about this? 
Okay, this is a, this is a very interesting question. And uh, let me preface my answer just by saying that I am not actually an expert in uh, either immigration or criminal violence, but I will uh, provide my, my perspective as an expert in the Latin American region um, and as an expert in the histories of, this, uh, of these uh, countries. And so I think um, there's a lot of variation in terms of how these topics are seen in Latin America, but we can point to a couple of things that, you know, can help us understand how these issues are viewed in, um, in the region. The first one has to do with um, geographic and economic proximity to the United States. By and large, um, immigration and, um, and uh, the traffic of illegal substances are not issues that are uh, very much present in the new cycle of countries in the Southern Cone, uh, in Argentina, Chile, um, Uruguay, even Brazil. Even though Brazil has its own problem of um, you know, substance abuse and, and um, illegal um, um, transport of, uh, of substances, it's not necessarily connected to the one that um, it's present in the new cycle in the, in the United States. So by and large, the, the, the problem that we see in the news here in the United States is not present in um, that group of countries um, in, in South America. Now, it's definitely been part of the news cycle and an important component of uh, political uh, debates in the whole area that um, includes Mexico, the Central American countries, and then the, the Caribbean. So this includes naturally uh, cases like Venezuela, like Colombia, uh, Guatemala more recently, El Salvador, and, uh, and Mexico. Now, within these countries, you can make some further differences, right? Um, in the case of uh, Mexico, the problem of uh, illegal substances became um, a problem or an issue more than, more. Uh, let me put it that way, um, more recently, Migration has been a, a phenomenon that has been going on for, for a very long time. Um, in other cases, the opposite is true. For Colombia and Venezuela, for example, uh, it was basically from the very beginning in the, in the 70s and 80s, um, an issue related to um, the traffic of certain substances. And um, the phenomenon of people migrating from there to the United States has never been all that important. And this is you know, for obvious reasons, right? Proximity. Uh, geographic, uh, physical proximity to the United States makes it relatively uh, easier for um, flows of people to move around. And I should say relatively because uh, the, what, it's not easy to, to move around for most people. That this is part of the issue, right? We have a, a, a system in which we have regulated uh, to some extent the free movement of certain goods, which is something by, that, by the way, facilitates also the, um, the transit and the movement of um, illegal goods like, like drugs, but we have basically um, left aside uh, the regulation of the movement of people. We have basically banned. So while, while we have very much promoted, and by we, I mean, you know, the international system, uh, and in this case, uh, in particular, the United States, uh, while we have very much promoted a system in which goods can travel and can move around uh, freely, uh, we at the same time have established a, a system that very, very strongly um, prohibits the movement of people, right? And this is somewhat ironic because the, the forces that are pulling in um, the, um, the illegal substances, the legal goods are also the same forces that are driving uh, people to move from one place to another, right? These are economic reasons. People, um, even though there may be some, um, you know, myths and uh, stereotypes about, uh, or some wrong ideas, frankly, about uh, what people do when they move to a different place. Like, uh, you know, sometimes uh, some people talk about uh, 
um, abusing the system or uh, ben social benefits or whatever. Uh, this is this is fundamentally not true, and this has been uh, you know shown uh, by by a very um, a strong literature that has looked at these issues very 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 carefully. And uh, you know people move because uh, they want to have better conditions and uh, of living, and uh, there are opportunities where they move to, and um, and so yeah, this this um, complicated system in which we have free movement of goods but not free movement of people, um, and also the very strong regulation of certain substances have landed us in this situation where, uh, you know, migration um, and, um, you know, cartels uh, all of a sudden become, as you say, um, a dominant issue, not only in the United States, but also in, uh, in this country, in these countries. By the way, in some cases with very, very dramatic uh, um, consequences, especially, this is especially true of the smaller countries in, uh, in Central America, where, um, you know, uh, remittances make up for a very, very large portion of their uh, remittances sent by migrants who live in the United States represent a, a very large uh, uh, proportion of um, their um, national GDP, right? And so everything that uh, disrupts this becomes a, a very um, big problem. Right now, we're seeing that, in fact, in the cases of Guatemala and Salvador, the, the pandemic has uh, brought um, a very important disruption in the flow of uh, money from the United States to these countries, and this has definitely had some important um, economic uh, consequences. But that, you know, to sum up, um, definitely the perspective that these countries have about these issues is very different from the perspective that uh, the, the United States uh, has, and uh, this is mainly driven by uh, geographic and economic uh, proximity. And with, with respect to cartel violence, I'm curious how you have seen um, the cartels specifically in Mexico um, and the resulting, uh, I guess, tide of bloodshed that, is, that has happened. Mm -hmm. How has that impacted the, the state of Mexico and the, like, the political structure, but also the structure of um, government agencies and all of the different kind of support systems that you know, typical governments provide? I guess, how, right. has, that, how has that been impacted uh, by that? Yes, absolutely. So let, let me... Um, provide what I think it's going to be. It may be a little bit of a of a controversial answer, uh, okay. but I think it's. I like uh, controversial answers. That's great. <laughs> so um, I think um, in the case of Mexico in particular, um, there was a there was a conscious decision for a long period of time uh, to to not engage with this problem, right? Um, and the rationale of authorities in, in Mexico when this happened. So I'm talking about, so let me provide just some context for this. Okay. okay. So um, there's a long story for this. At some point in the mid 20th century, um, you know, we have movement of these goods, but almost every government considered it to be maybe a little bit of a health, uh, um, public health issue, uh, but it was not really um, a big deal. Um, there was not there was not the demonization that we see right now with the, with the criminalization of certain uh, substances. And there was instead, uh, what I think it was a correct uh, vision of the problem that was much more centered on, on the public health aspects than the criminal aspects of the problem, right? Particularly during the Nixon administration, this fundamentally changed. Um, the United States started to talk about the need to wage a war against drugs, 
And um, with this came the creation. Again, this is not my area of specialty. Somewhat, it would be very interesting if you could at some point uh, uh, do a podcast that it's uh, specifically uh, centered on this. I would be happy to contribute, but maybe not be the main uh, uh, the main contributor to it. But at some point in the in the seventies, um, this became like a policy priority of the United States. There were agencies that were created. And, um, and there was um, a very, very explicit commitment by the United States to make part of its foreign policy uh, to pressure foreign governments to, uh, you know, combat the, the production of these substances, the cultivation of uh, certain uh, precursors for the, for the um, you know, the elaboration of these substances and stuff like that. And this had tremendous effects. Uh, tremendous effects that um, I'm happy to delve a little bit into, but because we're focusing on the case of Mexico, let me just say what more or less happened. There was, because again, international relations are very much marked by uh, power differences, uh, Mexico had in a way to cooperate, right? But the unofficial policy was, was to not make it a top priority, right? And the main reason for that, or the main rationale for that, from the perspective of the Mexican government was, this is not a public health issue here. The consumption of these substances is occurring elsewhere. And um, there's not a good reason for us to be using a lot of resources, scarce resources, um, in terms of policing an activity that we really don't care too much about. We'd rather have some sort of uh, you know agreement, naturally not public agreement, but rather kind of underground agreement with these organizations. You know, telling them that there there, there should be uh, you know no um, no violence, no uh, overt displays of these activities, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that there could be some degree of cohabitation. Right? Uh, this naturally is problematic. There's a lot of uh, corruption involved when you make a policy decision like that, right? Because you are um, implicitly at least um, tolerating an activity that you're officially saying that it's uh, actually illegal. And so that's one first effect, right? That, that you can see right there. But I would say that by and large, the, the effects of this policy, given that there were very little options, were probably better than the ones that we saw once the uh, Mexican government started to fully engage in a war of drugs. And so what we see is a, is a process that goes on through the 80s and 90s, where there's a very, very rocky relationship um, between Mexico and the US in regards to this. In fact, there's a, there's a DEA agent um, who is killed in 1985 um, in Mexico that causes um, a short diplomatic crisis between the two countries. There's uh, very little cooperation on the part of uh, the Mexican government on the investigation and on other things. And this basically signals the way that the Mexican government is seeing this problem, which is, it's not my problem. It's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some things. I'm gonna you know, try to um, show that I, I care about this, that I, uh, I'm doing something to fight um, you know, the cartel, at that time, we didn't have cartels as such, or as the organizations that we have right now, but I'm not fighting these organizations. Um, but I'm going to do something to show up that I actually care about this. And that's going to be the end of it. And again, I think that the effect of that was some degree of corruption at the local level in particular, 
but compared to the alternative, which I think we have seen recently, I think it was probably a preferable policy option. What happened in 2006, um, that's um, 14 years ago, with uh, President Felipe Calderon, was that he, he shifted gears. There are disagreements uh, between specialists on what exactly motivated him to, to change the strategy. But ultimately, the consequence was that, that he uh, engaged in a full-out war against the Carlos. And he committed not only uh, security forces as police, federal police and stuff like that, but also uh, the army, um, the navy. And these are um, you know, bodies that are trained to do basically warfare, right? And so obviously what you're going to have after taking that type of decision uh, is going to be a lot of uh, human rights abuses and uh, um, a lot of, um, you know, increasing violence, right? And let me just to, to, to be, because this is a complicated story that, you know, one can unfold into very different uh, pieces. Let me just uh, provide a, a couple of numbers to uh, illustrate the magnitude of the crisis that came after that, right? So Mexico as a country in the mid, um, right about the point when Felipe Calderon um, took power, had a homicide rate of about nine deaths per 100,000 inhabitants. Um, that's compared to, you know, the Western world, if you will, uh, Western Europe in particular, that's relatively high, but it's not terribly high. It's in, in fact, um, much lower than almost any um, city in the United States, for example, right? And probably about double than the homicide rate overall in the United States. By now, 2020, the, the homicide rate um, is um, around, it's hovering around 30 deaths per 100,000 people. So it has tripled. In 14 years, you have uh, uh, tripled the rate of homicide rates. Plus, you have created um, a situation in which you have basically a human rights um, a crisis in Mexico because the the um, naturally there's a lot of um, you know violence that it's exerted directly by uh, by the cartels uh, you know against uh, businesses against uh, the population itself but there's also a lot of violence that it's being exercised by uh, the state itself and I think this has been a major change in the way that. Uh, the Mexican state, first of all, deals with these types of problems, but also in the type of relationship that the Mexican state has with its population, right? Has with its society. The main change that I would say has um, occurred in the aftermath of this uh, uh, war. Actually, I shouldn't say aftermath because it's ongoing, unfortunately. In the, in the context of this ongoing war uh, on drugs has been a fundamental change in a state society relations. And whereas it was the case that before this moment, there was you know, um, certainly uh, corruption on the part of uh, certain institutions and things like that, by and large, the Mexican state was not in the business of you know, um, massacring or uh, you know, extrajudicially killing um, a large number of people. There had always been reports of, uh, you know, human rights abuses that had occurred in the past um, um, in isolated regions, but the scale at which this has, this has been occurring lately is, is just um, astronomical, right? And so this is, this is a major change. And 
you know, we can talk about other um, other uh, problems that are related to these. Definitely more uh, corruption. The the consum I mean, the movement of uh, of these uh, substances involves a lot of money, right? There are estimates. Um, I don't want to to cite um, a precise number because these are always very controversial. Um, but but whenever you see a study that looks into this. You cannot believe the numbers, like the, the the amount of resources that these organizations have at their disposal uh, is just staggering. And so obviously there has been a lot more corruption at the local level. But I would say that those problems compared to a human rights crisis of major proportions are comparatively uh, small. So again, I would say there has been one big change. And that big change has been a fundamental change in state-society relations in Mexico in the last 15 years. Oh. Do you think that there's, uh, given the tremendous amount of money that the cartels control um, and their capacity for, I guess, you know, even building their own kind of paramilitary groups, um, is there a threat to um, the state of Mexico or to the states, uh, any of the states in Latin America um, by these organizations, or is it something that, um, or, or have there been examples throughout history of similar types of groups um, causing a, a legitimate threat to governments? Okay, so let, let me um, pro provide two answers to that question, okay? Um, I think the second one is going to be slightly more interesting, but the first one is important. So the first one, uh, and, and actually these are going to be slightly uh, contradictory answers, but I, I hope I can introduce enough nuance so that this is clear. Because okay. the, the first answer is is a is a very clear yes, right? In the sense that the very purpose of the state is uh, to protect life, to protect property, uh, to 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 monopolize violence in the way that that's how we like to define states. Actually, political scientists, after you know, a very famous definition by Max Weber. Uh, he wrote uh, more than 100 years ago, um, which is basically the state is that human organization that is able to successfully monopolize the use of violence. Huh. Whenever you have organizations that are doing these types of things, that represents um, a, a challenge to the state, right? Um, and, and there's no doubt that in certain patches of territory, um, some states have seen a very, very strong challenge to their rule. Now, having said that, uh, and I think this is important. I think this is maybe not the best way to think about the problem in the following sense. These are not organizations that want political power. These, and, and, and for that reason, they are not fundamentally in the business of challenging states. In fact, they are business organizations. What they want is the money that it's associated with moving goods from one place to another. And so they know that challenging the state is a bad idea. Mm. And uh, the, the state has, and I'm talking about almost any state in the region, even though there, there are uh, differences, but if we focus in the case of Mexico, there is absolutely no doubt that the Mexican state has way more resources, way more firepower, way more capacity um, in terms of coercion, in terms of, uh, again, firepower, literally, uh, than any of these organizations. And in a, an open confrontation, they would stand absolutely no chance of um, successfully mounting an armed challenge to the to the state, but more importantly, they are not interested in doing that, right? And in fact, what they try to do are other very pernicious things 
uh, but that mostly are about negotiating with the state, right? What they want is to develop some sort of relationship whereby the state, um, you know, allows them to do these uh, these uh, types of activities. Now, there's a lot of violence that goes on uh, between the state and these organizations, between the organizations themselves, and sometimes, unfortunately, between these organizations and the general population, and sometimes the state and the general the, the general population. But this is not a fight over political control. No uh, cardinal organization um, that that operates uh, nowadays in Mexico is in the least interested in uh, political uh, political power. And mainly, what they are doing uh, by arming themselves is to be able to overcome um, the challenges uh, of moving goods from one place uh, to another. There's, let me just say uh, for for one moment that there's um there's um an important exception to what I said right now in a different country, which is Colombia. There was a period of time during which uh, the FARC, um, the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, did develop uh, some connection to um, the traffic of illegal substances. And this was an organization that did have political goals. But this is very rare. This is exceedingly rare. And for very good reason, right? Uh, again, if you're in the business of moving goods uh, to, from one place to another, it's not a good idea to engage in a fight for political power or to try to challenge a state that definitely has much more uh, firepower than, uh, than, than you do. And so all the displays that you see in terms of, you know, guns, um, armament, these are basically propaganda efforts of these organizations to intimidate other organizations um, and to um, uh, signal, right, uh, that they are capable of doing, of doing some things, but they are not again, in any, in any meaningful say, sense, trying to mount a political challenge to a state. Now, as I said at the beginning of my answer, that doesn't mean that the state is not being challenged in the sense that its very basic function, right, is being questioned, right? Because if these organizations can display uh, or make these displays of, um, you know, uh, firepower in any region in the country, any state, has to consider that to be a challenge uh, to its authority. But it's very different to think of that as an actually actual challenge on the authority of the state. I hope this is clear and that, that, this, is. that yeah, that's this nuance is captured in my answer. Yeah. So in 2016, uh, you and three other colleagues uh, had an article published in Latin American Research Review that looked at the political effects of the three-by-one program in Mexico, um, which... Um, sought to capitalize on the resources sent by migrants to their hometown communities to finance public work projects. Can you talk a little bit about that research and about the effect of the three-by-one program? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, this is a paper that I, I like very much. Um, I think, let me start just by saying a couple of things about the program itself, sure. uh, and then I'll move on to, to what exactly the research is, is about and what we found. Uh, so this is a, a very interesting program that uh, was basically first established by a, a, a Mexican state, by Zacatecas, uh, a state in the center of Mexico, uh, that has historically um, a relatively has historically had a relatively large network of migrants uh, going to the United States. And so, the idea of the government was to capitalize on the resources that were sent by migrants to their home communities 
right? In a way that instead of those resources just be funneled for consumption, right? Um, that there could be something else done with these uh, resources, right? Something that perhaps could um, improve um, local infrastructure, right? Like schools, like, um, um, you know, um, roads, uh, stuff like that. And so what they proposed um, migrant organizations was a, a public program that would match the resources sent by uh, these uh, migrants to their home communities. And both the municipal and the state government would put one um, peso for every peso that was sent by uh, these migrant organizations under the condition that these resources would be used again for this, uh, for financing these projects of uh, local uh, infrastructure. So at that, at that point, the program was more, um, would better be described by two by one, right? It was the migrants sent one peso, the state and the local government put two pesos uh, to match that money. And then through those resources, finance um, some important local infrastructure projects. It, it, it worked. Uh, reasonably well, and so that was later scaled at the national level. And so the, the the federal government came up with this program that was called Three by One, which was doing the exact same thing, but just involving the three levels of government, right? Uh, municipal, state, and federal government, and doing the exact same thing, um, telling organizations, you know, if you, if you put up uh, a committee, right? and you uh, commit to invest these resources in your own community, will match every peso that you send back to your home community with three pesos from the three levels of government. And with that money, we'll finance some uh, project of uh, infrastructure at the, at the local level. And by and large, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very nice idea. And in fact, it's a, it's a very interesting program that has had a number of um, important and interesting effects at the local level. Now, we document something, um, that it's kind of an unfortunate side of, uh, of, of the program, which is its political manipulation, right? Um, basically, uh, whenever you have a situation where you know, uh, money is involved, um, incentives might not always be aligned um, for the best interest of, uh, of communities. And so uh, what we wanted to, to find out when we um, did this research was, first of all, whether or not there was a true um, shift in resources in the part of local governments, right? In the sense that if you are committing to invest uh, for these things, well, uh, there should be some evidence that you are actually moving resources from other areas to um, um, investment on, on local infrastructure. And we were worried about the possibility that in fact, programs like this one would um, be displacing investment, right? That would free up resources of the local government and they would use them for other um, for other purposes instead of investing more on these uh, types of uh, of things. We were also worried about the possibility that they would be using uh, these resources politically to enhance their uh, electoral prospects. Um, and they and we were also worried about the possibility that um, the the state um, the states. Um, Mexico is a federal country as the United States. And so it has a, you know, a federal government and it has the states and then it has municipal governments. And so we were also worried about the possibility that uh, Mexican states or governors of Mexican states would engage in political manipulation of the program by um, you know, making easier for municipalities governed by their own uh, party to have access to these resources 
than parties that were governed, uh, governed by other parties. And it turns out that we find all three things, right? There is some degree of, so if, if I could sum up very uh, quickly the findings of the paper, uh, we find that on the one hand, uh, municipal governments are strategic in how they um, time the disbursements of these uh, um, of these programs. They basically spend much more in this program during um, electoral years. Uh, they also protect certain categories of spending, right? Um, so that um, they 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 can again enhance their political prospects by uh, by doing this. And finally, we also find that. Um, municipalities governed by parties that were of the same sign, of the same political sign as the state government, were getting more resources of the of the program. So, what is the big lesson of this uh, of this paper? I think the big point here, or or, or the big picture here, is about uh, institutions and about uh, institutional building. Even though the paper is about how a federal program can and was politically ma manipulated by um, municipal and, and state governments, I think ultimately the lesson is about institutional building. You, um, it's very difficult to um, build capacities, institutional capacity, governmental capacity, just by uh, the movement of resources or the dismemberment of uh, certain, certain resources. It, it would have been much better, I think, if uh, some of these resources were um, moved to uh, enhance, for example, the capacity of municipal governments to collect taxes, right, at the local level. Um, it would have been much better if this somehow gave um, municipal governments the ability to recruit better personnel. And so in that sense, these types of changes that are more connected to the way that governments permanently relate to its population, right, how it taxes um, um, you know, the neighbors in the municipality, how it administers services, all of these things uh, are much more complicated to achieve, right? And require other types of investments and other types of uh, incentives, right? To, to, to be actually built. And so ultimately, I do not think that our research says that the program is, you know, uh, harmful or anything like that. Not at all. I think it's a, it's a great program overall. But I do think that the evidence of political manipulation is is very strong, which is something that it's uh, it's quite unfortunate. Mm. You presented a paper that you wrote with Melissa Rogers of Claremont Graduate University, where you both looked at capacity building in Mexican states after the country democratized in the late 1990s. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and what you found? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is this is um, this is work in progress, I should say. But it's work in progress that it's uh, it's very close to my heart. So I'm very I'm very happy to talk about this because this is a an effort to. So again, my areas of the specialty is institutional building. This is what I study, uh, you know, both cross nationally and subnationally. And so it's it's an effort to, you know, try to test some of the ideas that I developed for um, you know my uh, my up upcoming book, uh, which looks at state building over a long period of time and at the national level and test it in a more limited environment, right? And uh, which is state um, governments in Mexico during a, a very particular period, which is uh, from the 1990s to the, to the present. And let me just provide a little bit of context of what's going on in Mexico uh, to understand the, 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 the reason why this, I think, is a good 
sort of laboratory to test these ideas. Um, so even though Mexico is a, is a federal country, uh, for most of the 20th century, um, the, the country was ruled uh, by a single party, the PRI, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, um, which um, basically through control of the national institutions of the federal government, gradually um, stripped states um, away from uh, many of their uh, political power, of a lot of their political power, right? And so, um, whereas it is the case that, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a much more even relationship in terms of, you know, what state governments did and the federal government did, um, and uh, also in terms of how monies were, um, how resources were actually obtained in terms of taxation and then distributed throughout the federation. Toward the end of the 20th century, there was a very, very, very strong concentration, both of resources and political authority in the federal government, right? At the expense of, uh, of the um, Mexican states. This is, by the way, a process that I think um, most federations in the world in the world underwent during the 20th century. So I think any specialist of American federalism will tell you that federalism knew better days in the United States uh, before the 20th century. States were much stronger than they are uh, right now. And, and, and so there's like this secular process through which um, the central government has become much more, um, much stronger in most, in most federations of the world. But this was particularly acute in the case of Mexico. This was um, a country where at some point, almost 93% of all um, taxation occurred at the, at the federal level. And, um, and in terms of spending, uh, upwards of 80% uh, in the late 80s were spent by the federal government. So it was very, very much centralized. And this um, started to change quite rapidly with democratization. So once um, the PRI started to lose um, control of, of the states, so the process of democratization in Mexico is a very interesting one because oftentimes when we uh, hear about democratization, we think about the transit of, say, a military uh, government, right, to an open uh, system of elections, sure. right? Yeah. Think about the transition in Spain, for example, in the 70s, Francisco Franco dies, and then um, slowly you have a transition to um, um, a democratic um, regime. Uh, same is true of uh, the countries in the Southern Cone, very um, strong military dictatorships, um, Pinochet in Chile, um, for example, right? And so what you had is, is a transition from that type of government to open elections. The case of Mexico, it's, it's different because there was never um, um, an actual closing of a democracy in the sense that there was a, a dictator in charge, right? It was rather through an hegemonic party, a party that controlled the whole system and elections were there. Uh, and and it, it, was, it, it was just that there was only one party that could win them, right? Uh, and so transition from that type of uh, authoritarian regime to democracy looks different than a transition from military government to, um, um, again, an open and democratic regime. And so it was a gradual process through which um, opposition started to win positions first at the municipal level, then gradually at the state level. And, and that kind of led the way to eventually um, the first um, moment in which the PRI lost a national election 
which happened in 2000, right? And that's, a, that's the moment when um, there was a, another party that came to power. And so through this gradual process of democratization um, at the subnational level, what we see also is these new uh, opposition governments challenging the central authority and arguing that a lot of the authority that the center had concentrated was actually unconstitutional and they were challenging in the courts they were actually affirming their political authority. And gradually this started a process of uh, decentralization, right? That um, operated both in terms of devolution of political authority, but also uh, in terms of decentralization of resources. And the, what this means in terms of the analysis of political processes, there's, there's something here that we political scientists like a lot because you have a, a situation where you can actually measure, right? Before the nineties, what was what were what was the size of these governments, for example? What were they doing? And they were very very small. Uh, they didn't have a lot of um, you know agencies. They were they they weren't doing much. They were basically devoted to uh, law and order activities, some education, some health stuff, uh, and that was basically it, right. And then from the nineties onward, you start to see an explosion. Maybe explosion is not the not the right way, and uh, <laughs> and an increase a very uh, rapid increase in terms sure. of state agencies, um, state ministries, um, a deployment of new sort of bureaucratic structures, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, uh, this gives you like a very very um, special laboratory to see how exactly this process is unfolding, right? Because you had a moment where state governments were doing almost nothing, to a moment where in some cases, for example, um, you know, now they have uh, ministries of uh, economic development that have missions uh, in, all over the world, right? Uh, trying to strike deals with uh, um, enterprises so that they invest in Mexican states, things like that, that were just unthinkable uh, 30 or 40 years ago that state governments would actually engage in those types of, uh, of activities. Now, for the interesting part, I think, uh, I mean, all of this is interesting, but it's just the setup. Uh, and then, uh, what we are trying to, to investigate is um, the extent to which this process has led to the development of state capacity at the local level, right? Now, let me just define very quickly in a very sort of commonsensical way what uh, we mean by, by uh, state capacity. That was so, my next state... question. So I'll go, go right into it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a term that that you know it's kind of jargony and it gets used um, throughout um, and I think uh, sometimes people by the way are not always very clear about what they mean by by uh, by state capacity so a state capacity in a very commonsensical way of thinking about it is just the ability of public institutions to perform their duties in the way that they are intended to okay so what this means is that if there is a tax rate at which we are all supposed to be taxed, that governmental institutions are actually able to tax us at that rate and not less than that, right? It means that if there's um, 55 speed limit marked in the, in the road, there's gonna be the ability of the state to actually detect when you are violating that norm and force you to comply with it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's what state capacity in a very commonsensical um, way of talking means. Now, there are different dimensions, right, of state capacity. Uh, generally speaking, we talk about um, uh, three that are very important. 
one is extractive capacity, that is how much capacity the state has to actually um, garner or, or marshal the resources from society to actually operate. Then there's um, the coercive capacity, right? Which means the ability of the state to force us to do things that maybe we don't want to do, but are important uh, to do. And then, um, and then there's the regulatory capability, which is, means just the ability of issuing norms that are actually um, that are actually enforced, right? And so, just by going with the commonsensical examples that I just provided, uh, you can think of the types of things that you need to actually develop um, a state capacity. So you need a, uh, you know, technical competency on the one hand. You need uh, bureaucrats who are, uh, you know, well formed and that um, are following routines and a mandate and stuff like that. So that's that's one thing. You need uh, uh, technical capabilities. Um, uh, another thing that uh, you certainly uh, uh, will need is um, strong um, legislation, right? To protect the work of what these bureaucrats are, are, are doing, to give them independence, to give them um, autonomy again, right? So if appointed bureaucrats are only gonna do what uh, politicians are saying, then it's, it's very unlikely that they are gonna have the capacity to um, actually do the things that they are supposed to do. And so we measure basically um, state capacity by uh, looking at um, a measure of, uh, of uh, professionalization of, uh, of state bureaucracies. And we aim to ask the question of to what extent um, state capacities have developed in, at the state level uh, in Mexico. Now, we have an argument that, uh, let, let me, instead of giving you just the results uh, of, of what we are finding in the paper, let me just walk you through the argument that we have. Um, and then I'll tell you a little bit of what we have uh, uh, found. Maybe actually in, in walking you through the argument, I can explain a little bit of those uh, results. Basically what we're saying is that um, state capacity only developed in those states where two conditions uh, obtained. On the one hand, uh, these were states where, that were very highly exposed to um, market forces unleashed by economic liberalization, NAFTA, basically. So um, NAFTA was uh, signed in 1994. Um, it fundamentally changed uh, the Mexican economy that went from a much more protected economy, insulated economy to an open economy uh, free market economy, and so, but that the effects of NAFTA were felt differently throughout the territory. So what we're arguing on the first hand is that exposure to market forces was one driver of a state capacity. Now, why? The question there may be why, and 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 there's a very simple reason for that. It's that um, economic elites at the local level uh, who need um, uh, to compete in a new context require the state to be doing certain things, right? Require the state to be providing infrastructure, to provide a regulatory framework that it's uh, um, easy to understand, that it's uh, enforceable, uh, a number of things that their peers in other places of the world are having, right? If the state is not providing those things, they are at a disadvantage when it comes to competing in, uh, in, in the free market, right? And so economic elites were a first source of pressure uh, for the development of, of these state capabilities. Now, local authorities may or may not um, 
comply with these wishes from um, uh, economic elites. And so the second condition that we argue uh, needed to obtain for these uh, capacities to develop is uh, a strong political competition uh, in the form of electoral competition, right? And so in places where local political elites faced both uh, electoral pressure and pressure coming from economic elites, the development of these state capabilities became a strategy, a potential strategy of political survival, right? Mm -hmm. It's what enabled them to bring those elites into the realm of their support, right? And then through the provision of these uh, more capable um, uh, state institutions, uh, provide reasonably good economic outcomes, and at the same time, uh, garner more political support through that. Now, when elites did not face uh, either pressure from economic elites or a strong electoral competition, there was no incentive for them to actually uh, develop these uh, state capabilities. So uh, in a nutshell, that's, the, that's kind of the, um, the, the, the point to drive home, right? That for the development of state capabilities at the subnational level in Mexico, in the aftermath of economic liberalization in the 90s, you needed to have both strong pressure from economic elites and a strong pressure coming from electoral competition. Hmm. Since your research focuses primarily on the development of political structures and in particular um, state building, growth and democratization, uh, I'm curious what Latin American countries um, have been most successful in their changes throughout the 20th century? Okay, uh, excellent question. So I think uh, this brings us back to the to the question of uh, of institutional building and what uh, you know uh, what makes for a strong and capable government and how do a strong and capable uh, government uh, comes about. And you know, even though as I was saying before, there are different dimensions to this, and I think we can think of particular dimensions in which certain states were more capable of uh, doing things. I think overall, in their overall trajectory. I would argue that the two cases uh, that developed a most successful trajectory of institutional building during the 20th century were, in fact, the cases of Costa Rica and Uruguay, which we were mentioning a little bit before in the in the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. So these were, uh, first of all, there's a there's um there's an in interesting sort of commonality in 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 the two, in the sense that even though there were some um, interruptions of democracy during the 20th century early in the 20th century in the case of Costa Rica, and briefly uh, in the 70s in the case of uh, Uruguay, these are by and large countries uh, that have had a democratic regime in place uh, for, for most of their histories, right? And so this is an important uh, antecedent to mention. And I think it's, it's relevant to understand uh, their institutional building uh, uh, trajectories because this has always uh, provided institutional building processes with a lot of um, channels of connection of the state with, uh, with society, right? So these democratic institutions have informed very much the process of uh, institutional building. Now, what other things make, uh, make uh, special these, uh, these, these two cases? In, in my argument, what I say is that, what I um, show in my book is that institutional building is, is a process that even though it's driven by political elites, it's very much structured by the type of allies, allies I'm sorry, that political elites can uh, bring into what I call a state building coalition, right? And um, it turns out that depending on the types of allies 
that they brought into their coalition, political elites would build very different types of uh, states. And the type of coalition that emerged in um, both Costa Rica and Uruguay was a coalition, a cross-class coalition, if you will, uh, where economic elites, um, the political elite, and working class organization came together to support a process of institutional transformation that was very successful in the sense that it both enabled these two states to develop strong bureaucratic capabilities, uh, the types of capabilities that we were talking about before to, make, to, to ensure that the state actually enforces the law, enforces the programs that it uh, develops, but it also to make the state much more dense in the sense that the types of things that the state was doing uh, were very, very complex and implied the uh, connection of several sectors of society with the state. Let me provide just a couple of, of examples, or actually one example to illustrate this point, right? So one notable institution that was created in Uruguay um, in, the, in the 20th century is an institution called the Consejo de Salarios, which translated into English means the Salary Council. This is a labor market institution that it's geared towards um, regulating the, the salaries that uh, different sectors would be receiving throughout the economy. This is a concept that, by the way, it's not exclusive to Uruguay. Many uh, Western European countries um, have a similar institution. Uh, Germany probably is one of the notable cases, also the Scandinavian countries. But it's very foreign um, uh, to the way in which the economy works in the United States. I think if someone were to tell you that there was a central institution that would somehow uh, negotiate what should be the salary uh, for every sector in the economy, almost everyone in the United States would be appalled by that idea and would say, yeah, this is socialism. We don't want to do something like that. But right. the interesting thing about the Consejo de Salarios is that this was an institution that was definitely not geared towards, uh, you know, either socialism or uh, any sort of um, form of regulation that was intended to um, stifle economic activity. And the way to do that, which again, by the way, this is, this is not an organization that is unique uh, to Uruguay, it, it exists elsewhere, but the way in which this was possible was by bringing to the same table, right, uh, the main actors, the main actors, and to make this uh, a negotiated settlement that would happen every year and would take into consideration both, you know, economic productivity and effects to uh, economic incentives, but also uh, conditions of labor, right? The, 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 the uh, conditions of the working force and the pressures and the demands stemming from uh, unions. And these enabled uh, both um, 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 a mechanism through which um, labor mobilization was contained, uh, but at the same time provided for a mechanism through which salaries and other um, concessions to the labor um, um, unions and labor organizations were mediated by the input provided by uh, economic actors, right? Um, and it's one example, right, of a, of a, of a in fact, that's an institution that still exists to the, uh, today in which you have this combination, right, 
of very strong input of strong social actors, all of which became part of this state building coalition. And at the same time, uh, that coalition coming together to enable the state to develop capabilities that it didn't have before. Now, again, take into consideration the types of things that a council like this must take into account in order to regulate this thing without messing all up, right? Without uh, fundamentally um, affecting one sector of the economy, without uh, fundamentally providing the wrong incentives uh, to workers in certain areas and all those, it requires a lot of competency, of technical bureaucratic competency and economic competency, right? And so these were the types of, uh, of capabilities that they uh, were able to build uh, over time through these very broad uh, social, uh, social uh, coalitions. So um, again, if I had to put it in a nutshell, I would say the most uh, effective recipe for institutional building is that which combines, on the one hand, uh, strong contention, strong mobilization, but on the other hand, strong coalition making, right? Bringing together different uh, sectors of society to inform the process of uh, institutional building. I hope this has been at least minimally clear. I hope the, the example of the Consejo de Salarios didn't take us too far away from, um, you know, or, or, or too much into in the specifics. Uh, no, I think it's helpful. Um, so your forthcoming book explores the reasons that only 600, six other Latin American countries, we have Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Costa Rica, Mexico, and Uruguay underwent state reform processes in the 20th century. And I'm curious if there's any common thread there. Is it those coalitions that you were just talking about? Or is there something else that occurred that, you know, really set these these countries apart? Yeah, so this, this question uh, makes a very interesting connection with the question that you asked before about state building at the local level in, in, in Mexico. Because basically the common thread um, this is a very structural argument, I should say, and that I obviously introduce some nuance when I, there's a chapter in which I discuss other cases outside of the six that you are uh, talking about, in which I talk about, you know, how there, there are certain um, processes that unfolded in these cases that make the, the strong assertion of only these six cases a little bit less stringent. But ultimately, in, in, in terms of, um, of the, the main driver, that sets these six countries apart from the rest, there's, there's one thing that was incredibly important, which was um, a diversified economic elite. This is the, the basis for uh, institutional building in the 20th century in Latin America. And let me just explain why. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, for a very long period of, uh, of time, uh, the economic insertion of uh, Latin American countries into the world economy was fundamentally um, driven by this process of export of uh, primary goods, okay, which made up for the creation of these very strong economic elites, in many cases landed elites um, that, uh, that uh, were in control of that process, right, of uh, producing these goods for the exterior. And when you think about it, there's a very good reason why these actors, these recalcitrant elites, were very much opposed to uh, the, the, the building of strong states, right? For them, their understanding of the world economy and of, of the way in which these countries were uh, becoming coming together in the world system was one in which the state was not needed. In fact, the state was in the way 
of these uh, of these uh, processes of exchange, right? Um, uh, it doesn't mean that they didn't want a, a state at all. They definitely needed the state for other purposes, mainly coercive purposes, right? So uh, a lot of these activities required uh, labor, large labor contingents uh, in the countryside uh, or in mines or in places like that. And so they definitely did want to have a strong coercive apparatus that would enable them to uh, repress labor whenever it was necessary, but not much else. They were not interested in, uh, in, in, in much else. And so um, whenever there was an economic elite that had kind of moved a little bit away from that, and it started to make inroads into industry, for example, manufacturing, right? Um, stuff like that. The crisis opened up a new opportunity, right? It, it was a, industry manufacturing activities in general had faced lots of constraints, constraints before the crisis, mainly because the uh, other countries had kind of um, an advantage. They had started industrializing long before, um, 70 years before, right? And so they had both a technological uh, and an organizational advantage. And so they were, um, this is one reason why manufacturing took a long time to take hold in many of these countries. But in some cases, in fact, the, the six that we're talking about, there was some degree of development of these other activities. Um, industrialization in particular uh, made a, a strong um, kind of inroad in the cases of uh, Mexico and Brazil, two big countries, right? Where there was a local market uh, where this was possible, also Argentina uh, to some extent. And then other types of activities uh, in the in the other cases. But the point is, once you have this diversified economic elite, you have a powerful actor that is interested in a state that does more than simply repress, right? And so again, going back to the to the point of the crisis, the crisis opened up an opportunity whereby there was this interruption in this kind of secular process through which there were primary goods moving from Latin America to the industrializing world, manufacturing goods coming back. And uh, this opened a, a, a moment of opportunity through which local elites said, like, maybe we can actually um, uh, engage in this manufacturing activities ourselves. But for that, we're gonna need some uh, degree of support coming from the state. So we need a state that is able to do other stuff, that it's able to uh, provide the right incentives, uh, uh, provide um, um, mechanisms um, of lending, um, a state that does much more things than just simply kind of opening the way for exports to, to occur. And so that's basically what sets apart the, the, the six countries that I um, cover in the book from the rest. An economic elite that had diversified, thus creating an actor that was very much willing to support, to invest resources in um, a, a state building. Actually, the, the the tragedy of many other countries in the aftermath of the crisis is that in spite of the fact that it seems economically misguided to uh, try to go back to doing the traditional thing of exporting uh, primary goods, because of the very strong uh, influence of these economic elites, they do exactly that um, with both economic and political disastrous effects. Mm. I guess what sets Venezuela, but so Venezuela, we know, has undergone tremendous upheaval, economic collapse, widespread hunger, supply shortages. 
Um, what about that government, I guess, um, either exacerbated or caused that problem? Um, and, you know, why is why are we not seeing that elsewhere in Latin America? Okay, great question. In fact, this is a, this is a fascinating case, I think. Um, to talk about Venezuela, I think it's important to um, just go back in history a little bit and just remember that, you know, just uh, 30 years ago, nobody talked about Venezuela the, the way that they talk about it uh, today. And that was basically because uh, Venezuela had um, a relatively robust uh, system of political competition uh, with parties, um, an, an open system of, uh, of um, elections, um, you know, parties alternated in power. It was very close to the United States in, in many ways. And that all changed uh, with, uh, with uh, the arrival to power of Hugo Chavez in the late 90s. Now, um, and there's a, there's a long process of institutional erosion uh, that I would like to touch upon before, um, you know, going into the moment that we're living right now. Basically, because even though our natural reaction, or I think the natural reaction of many people, uh, is to think of the problem of Venezuela as being the arrival of Hugo Chavez per se, right? Uh, or the fact that he was a socialist-leaning uh, president. I think it's important to have a little bit of context of what made the arrival of Hugo Chavez likely and what has made both Chavez and later met Maduro, particularly um, recalcitrant um, uh, leaders and uh, in the way that they relate both to Venezuelan society and to the, and to the exterior. And Hugo Chavez cannot be, the, the rise of Hugo Chavez cannot be understood without looking at the trajectory of institutional development of Venezuela that goes at least from uh, the mid 20th century to um, uh, the 90s. And this is a trajectory that it's marked uh, first by um, a lot of uh, corruption, um, a lot of corruption in the political system and um, a fundamental disregard for um, the, the, the construction or the building of any um, system of uh, permanent uh, government policy that could take care or, or, or deal with the problem of uh, um, everyday life of regular Venezuelans, right? So even though it was an open system of government, the, the, the government was not really working for the people. And the main reason for that is uh, related to the way in which the Venezuelan government was financing itself, which was fundamentally through oil uh, uh, revenue. And mm. so this has historically, historically made Venezuelan elites a lot uh, more separated from uh, the society that they are governing uh, than elites elsewhere, right? So uh, this, this problem of relative uh, institutional erosion comes long before uh, Hugo Chavez. And actually, Hugo Chavez is explained by that process of institutional erosion and just comes to represent its end point, if you will, both Hugo Chavez and, uh, and uh, Maduro. And so what you see right now is a, is a cycle um, in which at times uh, you have um, uh, a Venezuelan government uh, very, both in the cases of Maduro and uh, in the case of uh, Chavez before him, uh, where the Venezuelan government takes this uh, very strong stances against the United States in the international arena, very defiant stances, 
in uh, also very defined stances against the opposition. Um, and then oftentimes when these um, streams of revenue uh, decline because of changes in the international market, uh, the government changes its tone, changes uh, the way that it relates to international actors, also to some extent uh, to, the, to, the, to the opposition. And ultimately, uh, this has been kind of a degenerating cycle in which um, the, the, the Venezuelan government at this point um, seems to be uh, um, um, a government that is supported by a very uh, small minority of, uh, of, its, uh, of its population. Uh, but unfortunately, because um, the, the, the mechanisms of uh, governance are uh, basically controlled by this, uh, by this elite very close to, to Maduro, there's very little recourse that uh, Venezuelan society can have um, to, to reclaim or to reorganize again into an open system, the Venezuelan political system. We're at question 13. You made it to the end. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you know, I... I try to ask something a little bit different with my 13th question, but um, this one I'm, I'm kind of curious and in, in through all of your work, looking at these different governments and, and you know, you're looking at Mexico, you're looking at Latin America and I'm curious, what do you think have been the biggest, what is the biggest development or biggest change or biggest really story that comes out of that region that has been underreported in the U.S. So what don't we know about things that have happened in Latin America in the 20th century? Or I guess what is the most common um, missing piece of knowledge that, that you find, um, uh, you know, just hasn't been, hasn't been um, I don't know, had a, had a light shown on it here? Right. That's that's. I, I think you you ended up uh, on a high note because this is a, this is a, this is a tough question, uh, mainly because I think there there are plenty. Right. Uh, sure. I think I think unfortunately uh, we we do live in a world in which uh, you know uh, information bubbles are a thing and, uh, and 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 it's very rare for people to go beyond. Um, the immediacy of, uh, of of their information bubble precisely, and uh, we rely on you know, a little bit caricatures, um, stereotypes, things like that, um, when it comes to thinking about uh, other places. Uh, I think there's something that it's inevitable about that. Um, but I think in the case of the, the way that Latin America is seen uh, within the United States, this is, this is particularly acute. There's this cultural difference that makes it uh, uh, very difficult for people to look uh, beyond those stereotypes and those uh, caricatures. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the I think uh, the the right thing to not talk about things that um, are maybe too much away from uh, from what I write about and say and 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 answer your question with things that are uh, very much connected to my uh, to my to my research. And 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 one that I would like to point out. Um, has to do with um, with the robustness of um, electoral mechanisms of um, of accountability, and uh, I think there's a there's a very common misperception in the way that um, people think about uh, Latin America, and that uh, historically people have thought about the political systems of North America versus Latin America. And there's, I think, this misplaced emphasis on the stronger um, uh, electoral institutions of the U.S. 
versus the relatively less strong uh, electoral institutions in Latin America. But it turns out that even though maybe that assertion is generally true, we have some examples um, throughout the region where electoral accountability has been not only present throughout most of its um, uh, of their history, but it turns out that both in terms of participation and in terms of the effects of electoral accountability, uh, countries in the region sometimes display much more um, robustness than uh, uh, the American political system. What do I mean by this? Uh, well, first of all, for example, in terms of uh, participation, levels of participation, you may know this, um, in, um, in US elections are incredibly low. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's, not, um, it's not uncommon for uh, both uh, local and national elections um, in Latin American co uh, countries to exhibit much higher levels of, uh, of participation. Mm. Um, and together with that, um, something that you know, has come, I think, to the attention of everyone uh, paying attention to politics in the United States, um, the fact that turnout is relatively low means that politicians are very much used to trying to mobilize a very small segment of the electorate. And ultimately, governing only for uh, those small segments of the electorate in the US, okay? And, and thus, in comparison, you would be surprised by uh, how the fact that um, parties actually lose much more uh, votes from one election to another, there's more uh, volatility from one election to another, uh, how much that operates as, as a mechanism of vertical accountability. That, that is, that forces uh, both parties and uh, uh, politicians to actually pay more attention to what a broader segment of the electorate um, wants or, or, or is demanding, right? Mm. And so yeah. this is one thing that has uh, surprised me a little bit as, a, as a, you know, looking things from the opposite perspective, right? Because I, I, I'm a specialist uh, in, the, in the region and it's only now that I live here, that I work here, that I become much more acquainted with uh, the, the American political system. And I have been, uh, genuinely surprised because even though I do think that the American uh, political system is very robust in many different ways, the American democracy is, is, is uh, um, strong, even though it's undergoing currently uh, uh, very, very strong challenges. Sometimes I ver I'm very much surprised by how little elections here operate as a strong mechanism of, uh, of accountability, mainly mm. because politicians, again, are, are very much um, used to, to cater to a small segment of, uh, of the electorate, turnout is relatively low. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, the information uh, bubble that the people that they cater to is, uh, is comparatively, I think, uh, limited. Uh, and I think this is a much less uh, common um, in um, uh, political systems throughout uh, Latin America. Hmm. Well, that was 13. Thank you so much, Professor Del Cueto, for joining us for this uh, remote recording via Zoom, like all of our recent recordings here. Um, I also want to thank our listeners for bearing with us uh, and the sound quality as we continue to do these um, remote recordings. And also want to take a moment to send our best wishes to everyone in the Colgate extended family. Uh, be well. And until next time, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer Laura Jack. 
and I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.